that all right? You got it fixed, Luke? Okay. Good to see you all. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Philippians chapter 3. We're just going to do Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday and Philippians chapter 3. And this has long been one of my favorite chapters in the Bible for a lot of reasons. And uh, it's an honor to open God's Word and just sit here and let God speak. Amen? Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father, thank You for Your kindness in giving us these precious words of eternal truth. Thank You for the Apostle Paul and the calling to which You called him and the example to which we can follow in his life. Thank You for his relationship to the Philippian church that You gave them together that was sweet and is an example to us of our life together. Lord, we do pray that You would help us to cling to these truths. Hold fast to them for the sake of Your Gospel. Salvation rests in the balance here. And we pray that we would be sober-minded. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, um, the Apostle Paul has a very sweet relationship with the Philippian church. And I'm not going to go into it extensively, but in verse 7 of chapter 1, he's just giving thanks for their, uh, the partnership in the gospel, the unity they share, and it gives him great joy in his work. He says in verse 7, chapter 1, it's, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. You know? And that really is a good summary of what love is. You know? You're holding someone in your heart always. And so he has this very tender relationship with the Philippian church. And in, uh, for a lot of reasons, their love and care and generosity to him and his work and his ministry to them, for which they're very thankful. And, and uh, so he writes a lot about unity, a lot about co-laboring in the gospel, a lot about joy in this book. And um, you come to the beginning of chapter 3, and he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, he says that a lot in this book. So, But isn't it? Uh, Calvin calls this a holy joy. You know, that, that, that kind of rests on you differently than just hearing the word joy, doesn't it? Because um, the Apostle Paul's in prison when he writes to the Philippians. And um, who is joyful in prison other than those who have a holy joy? Other than those who have a joy that rises above affliction, you know? He has a joy that isn't just bound to, you know chronic fatigue syndrome and feeling like you're preaching through the flu, you know? And he has a joy that transcends 
sitting in a prison cell for the sake of the gospel. And he has a joy that transcends all the other afflictions and persecutions of body and soul and spirit in this life. And, and so he just says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. There's, there's a little debate about when he says that. If he's saying, well, I know I've already told you to rejoice in the Lord, but I want to tell you again. Or if that phrase comes with what follows. Either way, both would be true. You know, I mean, we need to hear the warning of verse 2, and we need to hear the command of verse 1. And we need to hear them both repeatedly. Right? Very different in tone, very different in purpose, those couple verses. Um, and I, wanna, I, want, I want to just kind of make a point in a, a little bit of a different kind of way. Because a lot of times, I think when I'm preaching, I'm, I'm actually defending what preaching actually is. And I'm defending what preaching actually is from what I think all of you think preaching actually is. Because of where you've learned what preaching actually is. Um, and so, but I, I, I want to show you. I want to show you the difference here. Because um, let's, let's, let's take you know, commentaries that sell for money today. And let's hear what they say about Philippians chapter 3 and this phrase here, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. No doubt what the Apostle Paul is at least doing is he's marking a transition to a new topic in his pattern of thought, in the argument he's been making through Philippians 1, Philippians 2, and into chapter 3. But hear this. This is how some of you think preaching should be because you think this is exegetical, and you think this is actually what it means to love the truth. All right? This is a pain to me every single week. Recent scholarship demonstrates no one ever knew this before. No one ever knew anything before. These are the kind of things that guys who sit in ivory towers and don't actually preach to anybody, this is what they do and how they talk. And this is what you have to do to sell a commentary to seminary students. And all the seminary students think this is wonderful. So then what they do is they go and preach this stuff. Listen, recent scholarship demonstrates that verse 1 is a common expression used in letters of Paul's day as a transition from one subject to the next. It's profound. It gets better. Labeled as the epistolary hesitation formula. Now, I just want to let you know that what the Apostle Paul is doing here is he's giving you the epistolary hesitation formula. Okay? Now, you understand that I have properly exegeted Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. And you know and will remember the nature of the epistolary hesitation formula for all future endeavors of your godliness. You know, what in the world? This common expression contains three characteristic elements found in verse 2. You know, and so then he goes on and on and on. Now let me read something to you that's actually useful and helpful. Okay? Back when stuff was written about the Bible that wasn't to make money. And really working into chapter uh, 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs, you know. Um, the dogs, I think, <laughs> you know, the insatiable appetite of dogs. I watched a video last night of, uh, d- you know, somebody poured the f- food in the bowl for a dog, and the dog just, like, devoured it in, like, 1.3 seconds. It was incredible. And the reference, to is probably in somewhat parallel with verse 19. They're in his destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Always doing their work for their own appetite, these false apostles. Okay. And, um, and then in the, the second there, look out for the evildoers. Which is, I mean, these are remarkable things for the Apostle Paul to say. Now before I read what I'm going to read here, is this because the Apostle Paul is arrogant? Because here's the way you've always been taught this, if you've been taught this before. You've been taught that there was a problem in the Philippian church. And this is something that Paul had to deal with. The Apostle Paul had to deal with in the Philippian church. There was always this kind of 
push and threat um, of these dogs and evildoers and these mutilators of the flesh. And this was something he had to deal with back then. And it's never, ever applied today. Because these kind of things don't happen anymore, right? And so you think, so basically we just decide that what the Apostle Paul did in his work in his day is of no use today. So when's the last time that you have ever heard someone, maybe outside of me, but someone somewhere, go, this person is a dog, and this person is an evil worker. An evil worker meaning that seeking to, in the name of furthering the cause of the Gospel, they're actually harming it. You know, like Dane Ortland and the book Gentle and Lowly, for instance. You know. And you say, well, what's wrong with that book? Let me just very simply state it. The most simple thing that's wrong with that book is that he constantly says that at the, at the, at the very heart of Jesus, in, in the very center of Jesus' heart, the thing that's more important to Jesus than anything else, because it's at the very, very center, it's at the very, 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 very center of his heart, where everything else can't be, except this, gentleness and loneliness. Well, the error of that, the, the simple error of that that we have always known and understood in the nature of God is that all of the perfections of God are held together in the center of his very heart. Right? So here you have this book that's gone out to the entire church, the entire church now, for, I don't know, the last year or two. Everybody and their brother has read this, and, it's, and the whole foundation of it is built on a heresy about the nature of God. This is the kind of thing, you know? And I say that because I'm, you know, arrogant. And the Apostle Paul's, you know, because he was arrogant. That's why he does these things. That's why he says evil workers and dogs. Just think about anybody who has a name today and writes, writes a book. <laughs> I mean in the name of helping the church. And you just look around and you go, is there really good fruit being born from this? Man, the church is so humble and fruitful today in America. I just, it's just really amazing. You, know, you don't have to know the particulars. You don't even have to know the particulars of every teacher and every writer. You just have to understand, like, they all think they're helping everybody. Do we really look like we're being helped? crying out loud, (laughs) you know, and so evil workers and the mutilators of the flesh, and I want to read something to you because this is what men wrote when they actually wanted to help the church and not just sell books, they wrote things like this, we ought however, rather than talk about the epistolary hesitation formula, We ought, however, more carefully still to observe the vehemence. Do you ever think that there's a place for Christian vehemence? We ought, however, more carefully still to observe the vehemence. Maybe we should title the book Christian Vehemence. I'll have Esteban get on writing that. We ought, however, more carefully still to observe the vehemence with which Paul inveighs against the false apostles, which will assuredly break forth wherever there is the ardor of pious zeal. Wherever there is actually a godly zeal, somebody will have some kind of vehemence to say there are dogs and evil workers and mutilators of the flesh who are false apostles? You know? This has been so obvious for hundreds of years. How much they ought to guard. You know, you see how more helpful that is than reading about the epistolary hesitation formula? Listen to this. How much they ought to be on their guard against such pests, meaning the Philippian church. Yet he does not grudge to repeat these things. Because the Philippians would have incurred danger in the event of his silence.
and unquestionably, it is the part of a good pastor not merely to supply the flock with pasture and to rule the sheep by his guidance, but to drive away the wolves when threatening to make an attack upon the fold. And not not merely on one occasion. But so as to be constantly on the watch and to be indefatigable. <laughs> it just means tireless. To be tireless in the work. For as thieves and robbers are constantly on the watch for the destruction of the church. Do you believe that? You know, I'm not sure we believe that. You have to believe that. For thieves and robbers are constantly on, wa- on the watch for the destruction of the church. What excuse will the pastor have if after courageously repelling them in several instances, he gives way on occasion of the ninth or tenth attack? Now, here's what you think, though. You think, you know, back when we were preaching through the Gospel of Luke and I was dealing with a lot of this, it was like repeatedly, 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 because, you know, today, everybody who is leading the church of Jesus Christ is the, what I just call the American Sanhedrin. And I dealt with it week after week after week after week after week. And what your temptation is, is to think, Pastor, don't do it a ninth or tenth time. We already know. We already know. And you ought not to think like that, as if you have become beyond warning about this or that thing. Especially when you have been guilty uh, of this or that thing, or that center temptation still rests closely to you, to think that somehow you've overcome it, you've managed it far enough that you don't actually need hemmed in and inoculated in your conscience to uh, give way to that sin or temptation. That you don't need warned anymore. That's how we think. That's how you think. That's how I think. Are you so different from me? I get irritated being warned again, you know, about the same thing. I've learned to submit myself to it, I think, in recent years. To just recognize, you know what? I feel like I don't need to hear that again, which is exactly the reason why I need to hear that again. And then to submit myself to it. And you know, when I do that, it actually humbles me and deflates a lot of what would harm me in my own heart. And I commend that to you. So here, what do we have? We have um, these false teachers, right, who are of the circumcision party. They, we dealt with this in Acts 15. You have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian. That's the issue. And they're pests to the Philippian church. They don't get a lot of indication that the Philippian church has given way to it. Um, but the Apostle Paul doesn't have uh, nice words for them to say. Those who mutilate the flesh, you know, those who are given to just an external act that just mutilates flesh and then stirs up all kinds of strife and division. There's a wordplay here, but I, I'm not going to go into that. Verse 3, it's not who we are. Look out for them. They're always around, always around. But we are the circumcision, meaning the true circumcision. We're not ones who just mutilate flesh. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. Romans 5, for the love of God has been demonstrated, it's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given to us. We're the ones who actually have been born again by the Spirit. Our hearts have been rent to God. The old self has been cut away and is giving away to a new self. A circumcision of heart. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. When he says we glory in Christ Jesus, it's in parallel to putting confidence in something. We put our confidence in Christ Jesus, not our confidence in the mutilation of the flesh. The discipline of the body. We put no confidence in the flesh. Well, what is the flesh? That's really everything in us that stands against God. 
It's everything in us that stands against God. And we put no confidence in it. And when you hear me say that, what you think is all these bad things, but that's not actually where the Apostle Paul goes. That's not where he turns. Now just think about yourself. How much confidence are you putting in yourself? You know, to the women of our church who all think you're superior to your husbands. You know, because your husband's not dignified like you are. You know, he goes and plays disc golf. He wastes time watching sports on the television. He... spends money on things that just don't seem to have real purpose to something really important in life. And he actually spends a lot of it sometimes. He, you know, does more undignified things that need not be mentioned here. And also, because you work harder, it's your spiritual life. You work harder at your spiritual life. You're more disciplined. You give yourself to things, things that have purpose. You don't waste your time laboring and laboring and laboring for good things. But no confidence in the flesh. See, what is your list What list would you put together? Well, here's what you should do. You should go home and go, here's all the ways I put my confidence in the flesh. Now, I know for some of you, your husband has a superiority complex. That's just not not everybody here, okay? I deal with his superiority complex all the time. But you should go home and you should write a list of here's all the ways that I glory in the flesh rather than in Christ Jesus. Here's all the ways my discipline and my work and my opinions and my standard and my whatever you should make a list. I'll tell you what to do with it in a second. The apostle Paul's like, well, if that's what we want to talk about, if that's, how we want to, if that's how we actually want to approach this issue, is we want to think about confidence in the flesh. We don't put any confidence in the flesh, but the Apostle says, but, but I have reason to. I could put confidence in the flesh, and I could not only put my confidence there, my trust in whatever good thing, I could have my standing and merit of righteousness before God with. I don't know. I don't only. I don't only put my confidence there. I actually have a really good record. I have a great list. You know, he's not like the fool who puts confidence in the flesh, and everybody's like, "You didn't even have a list, dude." I mean, he's got a list. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. By the way, if anyone, if any of you, you know, if anyone else thinks he has reason, he's got a list. He has reason for confidence in the flesh. I have more. That should really strike you. And it should just cut at the heart of your pride. It should cut at the heart of your elevation of yourself and of your work and of your sense about your goodness that you think merits you to God. It should just cut right at the heart of it. Because you sit there and you think, I'm really impressive. Now you don't think, I think I'm really impressive. 
I think you think you're really impressive. And the Apostle Paul says, oh, <laughs> I mean, how is your list going to compare to his? Do you see what kind of folly our pride is bound up with? The Apostle Paul says, well, I have far more, and who would argue with him? Are you re- Now, in your heart, you argue with him. Who's going to argue with him? Now... No, no, Paul, look at my list. (laughs) I mean, what, you made it to church every Sunday for a year? If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then he goes into his list. Here's his list. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Let me make one point and come back to this. We were on the way to church this morning and looking at the uh, Bradford pear trees, which apparently people have a love or hate relationship with Bradford pear trees. You know? Either you love the flowers or you hate the thought that they're an invasive species. By the way, what is an invasive species? It sounds like geographical tribalism. <laughs> they choke out the oak trees. Well, maybe they do. I know nothing about this, okay? I'm sure somebody can educate me about this. I know nothing about this. But my wife told me on the way to church as we were talking about this, she said, they're, well, they're invasive. So people go out and actually cut them down like every weekend. I don't know. There's, a, there's people who go to war against Bradford pear trees every weekend. And if there's any place that they do it, I'm sure it's Monroe County. I don't know why there's still so many Bradford pear trees, though. They're obviously not getting the job done. Personally, I like the white flowers filling the woods. So, there you go. I place confidence in it. My opinion about this. The point being, kind of reverting back to verse 1 and 2 and 3 for a second, there are people who are defending our native forests against the invasive species that is the Bradford pear. This stupid tree that has pretty flowers, but then the wind just blows it over and it breaks and branches fall off and then it looks ugly. Why can we find no place for the defense of the gospel in the church? Why is everything about mutual back padding amongst all of those who are close to being dogs and evil workers and mutilators of the flesh who constantly oppress us with their arrogance and all of their confidence in the flesh and all of their success that they think commends them and their ministry to God and God just spits it out of his mouth and he despises it and abominates it and we're talking about eternal truth and there's no place for a defense. There's no place to go cut down what eternally damned souls when people go cut down what guards against protecting the oak trees. Ought not there to be somewhere a vehemence rooted in pious zeal? So that's what the Apostle Paul is defending against here when he writes his list circumcised on the eighth day. He was circumcised properly. You know, the Apostle Paul wasn't a foreigner who was circumcised after being a proselyte in Israel. He's a true Israelite. He was circumcised according to the law on the eighth day. He's of the people of Israel. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm not sure that there's a real superiority issue with the tribe of Benjamin other than to specify he is an Israelite. 
and he is identified by a particular tribe in Israel. And there's a record of this. He's of the people of God, in other words. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, I'm Jewish to the core. As to zeal, well, was he one of those apathetic Jews? Was he one of those Jews who were just kind of didn't really care about the law and were, no, no, that's not the Apostle Paul. He has zeal. So much zeal, he persecutes the church. Once Christ has come. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. The Apostle Paul is a Pharisee. A Pharisee meaning a careful interpreter of the law, but, and one who seeks to keep it with zeal and even defense against those who say Christ has actually fulfilled the law. He is zealous and he's sincere. He's committed to doing a lot of good. He's dignified. He has integrity. By all human standard, the Apostle Paul would be an upstanding man. We're not speaking of his right, actual righteousness before God. We're speaking of the kind of righteousness he would have by the appearance of men. In appearance before men. He would have looked to all of the Israelites as respectable, top of his class, successful in the work that he was doing for the sake of truth as they understood it, but in this case, for the sake of the Old Testament law, as the Pharisees understood it. And they never understood it with reference to Christ. So he has a list. It's an impressive list. Who can compete with his list? He's learned. He's studied the Bible more than you. He's lived the Bible better than you. I mean, if anybody has reason to put confidence in the flesh, it's Him. It's not you. So what are you doing? What are you doing? Like, what is keeping you from just disdaining yourself? I mean, don't you just have days where you just disdain yourself? Don't you just have weeks? <laughs> Months? <laughs> Where you just disdain yourself and you despise yourself. But what ever gain I had. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had. Whatever list of my efforts. Whatever lists of my hard work. Whatever, whatever. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It's a fascinating thing because the way we're kind of programmed to think is just to think about our to think about things that we generally consider or we all consider evil. You know. But that's not what the apostle Paul's doing here. He's saying all the good things about me. And my list exceeds yours. And it exceeds all of the mutilators of the flesh. You know, what you think is you would look at them and you would think they were obviously 
disrespectable men. That's not what they would have looked like to the Philippians. They would have looked like serious-minded, sober-minded, men of integrity, upstanding, men who you should think well of by all appearances. And then, of course, they oppress you with their hypocrisies, their outward hypocrisies. They oppress you with their confidence in their own flesh. They oppress the church. Look out for men like this. The Apostle Paul says, after his list of all the things that he could count as being more righteous than the rest, all of my righteousness, all of my righteousness, I count it all as a loss. All of it. It's all a loss for the sake of Christ. Because if you have a list of your righteousness and you have a list of your confidence in the flesh and you hold on to that, it is not for the sake of Christ. It is for you. And it is keeping you from Christ. If you look at your life and you think that somehow you can gain a righteousness before God because of the list of good things that you actually have held to, You're missing Christ. The Apostle Paul says, I count all of that as a loss. I don't count it to my credit. I count it as a loss. Indeed. I count everything as a loss. Absolutely everything as a loss. Because the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What is your confidence in the flesh in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? What righteousness will you put forward that will compete with knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? What will you bring to the table in comparison to the surpassing worth? Worth more than anything by infinite amounts to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. What will you bring? It's insanity. Having a righteousness of my own Putting my confidence in the flesh? When the other option is knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord? Because you never know Christ Jesus, your Lord, when, you put a, when you're putting your confidence in the flesh. Something else has to be happening. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because everything can go if I have Christ. Everything. Everything. And if you have the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord, then you have all of the greatest blessedness imaginable. You have all of the greatest blessedness imaginable. For His sake, 
I have suffered the loss of all things. What things? He's not just talking about his poverty on his missionary journeys. He's talking about all that he could count to his credit. He's talking about his list. I've suffered the loss of all of my list. Now, of course, it's true. He has suffered the loss of all things in many ways for the sake of Christ. But it's his list. I don't have anything anymore to put on a list. So is he saying don't do any good at all? Is that what he's saying? Is he saying don't put any work forward, any Christian effort or any work? No, not at all. What he's saying is don't put your confidence in any of it. That's what he's saying. Don't do, just, don't, just don't do anything good anymore. Count it all as loss. <laughs> no, don't do that. No confidence in it. It's always a threat to knowing Christ Jesus your Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Rubbish. You know, dung. For the children of our church, a cow pie. Okay? A cow pie. Dung. That's what he's saying literally. So here's what I want you to do. Go make your list. You have cats, shred your list and just put it in the kitty litter box. That's all it's good for. Rubbish. Dung. That's how I consider everything good about me. It's rubbish. Now tell me that's how you thought about yourself this week. You looked at your life and you considered all of your dignity. Standing up. This is the equivalent of taking off the coat in a basketball game. All of your dignity. And actually thought it was a real problem. You actually thought about yourself and you thought about, you know, for those of you who are highly disciplined who think all godliness comes through discipline or you're a perfectionist, it's like your list never stops. I just want to club you in the head and say, what are you doing? Let's make a list together. We'll find a good use for it. Just look at all your discipline and all your perfections. First of all, your perfectionism is stupid. You realize your perfectionism is stupid. You have a perfectionistic standard on like four things. Meanwhile, your heart is full of hypocrisy. You do well. It's just stupid. rubbish. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And you may gain Christ no other way. You understand this. You don't gain Christ and yourself. You entirely lose yourself and everything good about you to take hold of Christ. Otherwise, what is Passion Week for? What is this whole week for? If you have reason to place confidence in the flesh, if your list means anything, then what in the world is this week 
for where our Lord bled and died on that cross. If you have reason for confidence in the flesh, why did He die? What was His blood shed for? For nothing. For nothing. And that's why the Apostle Paul has some vehemence about this. They're dogs and mutilators of the flesh because there's no need for the cross of Christ if everybody has a list. That I may gain Christ. And you don't gain Christ with your list. You gain Christ when your list is crap. And be found in Him. What does it mean to be found in Him? It means my righteousness doesn't come from my list, my works, my efforts, my discipline, my whatever. means not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Or whatever you think the law is that you think you're doing. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. There is a righteousness that you need that has absolutely nothing to do with you. It's a righteousness that is credited to you when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you gain Him, having given up all confidence in yourself to merit your righteousness before God. Given up all of it. I have none. I need Christ. I have none except I just gained Christ. So I don't have a righteousness that comes from the law. I have a righteousness from God that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And if you don't have a righteousness from God that depends on faith, you have no righteousness at all. You have no righteousness at all. But if you have the righteousness that depends on faith, then you have before God and you're standing before God, you are justified, and you have a righteousness apart from yourself that comes from the work of Christ applied to you merely by your faith in Jesus and what He did for you. Because if you don't have that righteousness, then you can't know Christ. Your approach to God must be on the basis of righteousness. Your relationship with God must be on the basis of righteousness. Who would think that they could relate personally to the consuming fire that is Almighty God on the basis of their list? You need a righteousness that comes from Christ who dwells in the presence of God. That I may know Him. That I may know Him. If you don't have righteousness, there is no phrase that I may know Him. The Apostle Paul knows this. He says, I need the righteousness that comes outside of myself so that I can know Christ. I need this righteousness so I can know Him. And as you walk into Passion Week and as you think about this week, the reason I wanted to deal with this this week is because I don't want you thinking about yourself righteously as you think about Easter. Unless it's the righteousness that comes by faith in Christ. I don't want you thinking about yourself in a righteousness according to the law. In the proper sense. I want you to think about a righteousness that only comes from Christ so that you can know Him, that I may know Him. Because everything that's good about you that you put your confidence in keeps you from Him. It keeps you from Him. And every place in your heart and life where you put confidence in your flesh is a place where Christ is not known. It's where Christ is not known.
that I may know him. And we'll be in verse 10 and 11, Lord willing, next Sunday, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So, come to the Good Friday service this Friday here at 6.30. You know, it'll help you despise yourself. God helping us. It'll help you despise yourself a little bit. That's kind of our annual tradition is come to the Good Friday service so we can help you despise yourself a little bit. And I know that no one thinks you should despise yourself because grace, right? You know, don't ever tell people that because then they'll just forget that there's grace found in Jesus. Oh, for crying out loud. Maybe if, like, people despised themselves, they would actually know there is real grace found in Jesus. Stand with me for prayer, would you? Father, I do pray for anyone here who is still placing their confidence in the flesh, that they would seek an alien righteousness outside of themselves, not trying to keep a law of a law that maybe even is the law that's written in their own hearts, that they think will merit righteousness before you, that they would seek to know you not having a righteousness of their own anymore. And they would seek today the righteousness that's found in Christ, the righteousness that you close us, clothe us with. Father, I pray for lost to be the lost among us to be found, that they might know you. Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray that you would help us to have shame about ourselves and despise ourselves and disdain ourselves, that we might gain more of Christ and that we might know more of him. And I pray that we would just burn and consider everything good about us. That we would place our confidence in complete and utter rubbish. And that we would exalt Christ, the one who gives us a righteous standing before you. That we would praise him and adore him and give thanks to him because apart from him, we have nothing And we thank you for this week ahead and how we particularly consider his work on our behalf, his sacrifice unto death, his faithfulness to keep the law on our behalf, his love for us that bore your very wrath that was due to us in our place and who paid the full penalty. May we know Him. And may we think much of Him. And may we consider this worth more than anything. In Jesus' name, Amen.